Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week I'm joining you from Brussels where we have two of the top brains in the European Institute for Security Studies who've been thinking about how Europe deals with its troublesome neighbourhood. First up, we have uh, Florence Galp, who is an expert on the Arab world, and particularly the security and military relationships which are so prevalent in that region. And second up is Niku Popescu, who is a former ECFR person who has made the post-Soviet space and its security and political and other conflicts into a career over the last 20 years or so. So um, why don't we start with you, Niku, because the eastern neighbourhoods are is closer to us and <laughs> has been uh, a big subject of angst for, for many years for some member states, but it's also been an area where we've been very divided. And the whole relationship with Donald Trump and what he will do or won't do with Russia has made things even more confusing. Yeah, what we've also discovered in this process of uh, policy building uh, from an EU standpoint towards the Eastern neighborhood is that this neighborhood is much greater. So even if, if 10 years ago the whole talk was about uh, Ukraine and Georgia, and Moldova, Belarus, Armenia, Azerbaijan, now you suddenly discover that on a whole set of issues the challenges are more or less the same. So if we've we've and there are strong parallels with other regions. So if you look at state capture and and high degree of corruption that prevents also countries from reforming but also delivering on EU objectives, there are significant parallels between you know, places like Macedonia, Serbia, Albania, and countries like Moldova or Georgia on issues like radicalization and uh, Islamic radicalism and fighters. Uh, going to ISIS, but then often coming back into Europe, you suddenly discover that that's an increasing concern also for the state of the Balkans, but also for the states of Central Asia. And of course, all that resonates quite a lot with the sovereign neighborhood and and the you know nearly weekly security scares that one finds uh, in, uh, in the European capitals. And also the Central Asians have been going through the kind of... Uh, have been... Um, increasingly visible also in ISIS, but also in some of its recent terrorist attacks from Istanbul to, to Stockholm. Uh, so all of these threads actually link together the EU with places which are very far, but nonetheless very interdependent with the way you know, life um, goes on inside European capitals. So I want, want to bring... Florence in to see whether she thinks it's true that the, the southern and eastern neighbourhoods have become more similar. But maybe before we do that, when you were back in uh, ECFR a very long time ago, you'll remind me exactly when it was, you and Andrew Wilson wrote a report called Beyond Enlargement Light, arguing that this was no longer a European neighbourhood and that it wasn't good enough uh, dealing with the countries around the European Union as if they were going to join the European Union uh, and as if the policies that we had towards Eastern Europe would work towards countries that were fundamentally uh, different from the, the ones that have already joined the EU. We're even further be, uh, beyond enlargement light now. Well, one of the interesting things is that the Balkan countries have become more like the European neighbourhood countries than, um, than EU member states um, over that period of time. So everyone's kind of been gradually moving away from the European norms. How, how do you think about the policy frameworks now? Yeah, I think actually if you look at specific policy areas, 
uh, a lot of what constituted the enlargement light actually worked. So if you look at the degree of energy into, uh, independence Ukraine has or Moldova have, it's actually much bigger than it was 10 years ago. Ukraine is no longer buying Russian gas directly. It's interconnected with Europe. Moldova is interconnected with Europe. Trade has been reoriented. Now the EU is a much bigger trading partner for all of these plans. So a lot of these technocratic policies have worked. The bigger problem is not that they didn't work, but that basically the tasks uh, we set ourselves 10 years ago weren't inclusive enough of security issues, state implosion, uh, you know, police functioning, military, military reform. These weren't objectives. So you, but presumably also the other shock to us is that they've taken all the nice stuff of enlargement, like visa-free travel, uh, energy help and things like that, but they haven't become more European. They've, that's gone hand in hand with rejecting European values. Not necessarily, actually, it doesn't... Um, well, in it, doesn't wa- it goes in waves, doesn't it? But, but yeah, by yeah, and but, large... But, you know, history goes in <laughs> waves and in zigzags, right? So yeah. now we're on a slide down or a spiral, but nonetheless, you know, <laughs> I, I still think that places like Georgia and Ukraine, they, they are still much better in terms of uh, state functioning than we were told uh, 12 years ago. And, you know, of course, there is the issue of Donbass and Crimea, but that was very much an externally enforced, you know, military intervention that... Uh, that the Ukrainians would have been able to avoid were it not for, you know, for Russian military action. And what about the Balkans? Because they are like still at least nominally not part of enlargement light, but part of enlargement. But there seems to be little appetite for enlargement within the EU itself. And many of those countries have got quite sort of messy political situations, to put it in a delicate way. Well, except that it's reasonably recent that, uh, you know, Serbian politics was solved with Kalashnikov shootings in the lobby hotels. I remember there was a guy, Gjelka Rajnatovic, who was a warlord, you know, and then he was... And in the Balkans now, thing, you know, crises are still solved through political rather than... Uh, through political means rather than Kalashnikovs. And so even there, in, you know, in a 15 years perspective... I remember one of the most striking things of, was, of course, the Kosovo independ- recognition of Kosovo independence in 2008, uh, which was yeah, less than 10 years after the war over Kosovo, what the recognition of Kosovo provoked in Serbia was a government crisis and early elections. So, yes, the Balkans are not doing as greatly as we hoped. You know, the enlargement dynamic wasn't as easily reproduced as it was in, in Poland or even or Romania. But nonetheless, crises are solved through political means in the Balkans. And I think it's a major, you know, improvement, but also it's a major difference from places like Ukraine or Georgia, where still the military dimension is a much bigger part of uh, political crisis. All right. So, Florence, uh, how do you see things from a southern perspective? People thought that enlargement light was a stretch for Eastern Europe. But it was an even bigger stretch when it came to the countries of the Mediterranean. <laughs> and if you go beyond that, to, uh, the kind of Mashrek and the countries which are now, many of which are, are now suffering from uh, regional conflicts after the, after the Arab uprisings. There actually, there is almost no country that doesn't have an, a security problem in the region now, if you consider the region to be the Middle East and North Africa. Um, Morocco and Jordan are kind of afloat. Of course, you know, um, you could look at the Gulf states and consider that they look fairly stable, but Saudi Arabia is firstly conducting a war and secondly has terrorist attacks on its territory pretty much on a weekly basis. Um, so it doesn't look particularly good. And when I listen to Niku, I, I still see the differences between in the East and the South very, very much. And I, I sometimes envy him because I think 
you, you know, your biggest issue is corruption. Our biggest issue in the region in the south is that war, terrorism, people dying. And it's really, really dire. But um, when you look at, Nico and I published a report uh, where we, we took stock of um, the, the neighbors 20 years on from 1995 to 2015. And in the Middle East, North Africa, you do see actual real improvements, but they're all in the socioeconomic area. So you have um, improved levels of literacy, you have improved access to healthcare, you have more roads, you have more connectivity, etc., etc., educational levels, everything has gone up. What has gotten worse is the political component. So uh, freedom of expression, rule of law, good governance, all of that has gotten worse. And I think the instability we're seeing today is the result of uh, two developments. Number one, the fact that it has not gotten better, in fact, worse in terms of good governance. But at the same time, the cohort of educated people that have had enough has grown as a result of the first component, that is improvement in social economic terms. So it's a bit of a self-inflicted perfect storm, if you want. We, I mentioned when I was doing the intro, uh, the Donald Trump and the US, which is obviously a kind of factor in both of these parts of the world. I mean, you know, if you think back 10 years or 15 years, the US was the main constituent of order in both uh, Eastern Europe and in the Middle East. Now, in the Middle East, it looks more like it's the regional powers that are driving mm -hmm. things. And, you know, the U.S. is still a really important security actor like Russia and uh, other countries. Um, uh, but the, the kind of core driver seems to be more the local actors and how they play yeah. out against each other. And equally, on the uh, eastern side, the U.S. is the ultimate guarantor of Article 5 against Russian aggression, but wasn't very active when uh, Russia went to war with Georgia, uh, even less active when Russia went to war with Ukraine, and, uh, and that was before Trump. <laughs> so how do you see that both changing these regions, but also the EU, which was a sort of uh, junior partner to the US, certainly in both of those uh, domains when it came to the really hard security questions? I think if if you look at the, the Middle East, the development you see today is the result of the invasion of 2003. And not just the invasion of 2003 of Iraq, but at the same time the discovery that Iran was working on a nuclear program. And these two have together led to the actors in the region that could uh, to believe that they have to be more independent of the United States. And that's when the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia started beefing up their military considerably. I mean, the UAE had basically no fighter uh, pilot or, or jet in 1995, and today they are the fourth biggest air force. Uh, and that's a country that's the size of Barcelona, population-wise. Um, and Saudi Arabia doubled the number of, uh, of, um, of its army. And of course, as we know, they are not afraid to use them. Um, now, whether that's because they have it and therefore they want to use it, or because it's a continuous development of after 2003, um, them feeling that nobody's helping them, um, I, don't, I don't know. But the perceived, um, not necessarily withdrawal, because that would be Obama, but the withdrawal plus before that, the, the um, impression that Bush sent to the region that he was willing to um, well, create instability, but then not take care of it, I think has led to this emergence of regional powers that are shaping matters in a way that is beyond us. And the Europeans and all of this, um, well, we are onlookers more than, more than shapers. It was that because 
with these regional powers, we have no formalized relationships. You know, the way we deal with the Mediterranean countries, we have the ENP framework, but we have no real free, actively uh, efficient framework um, for the GCC countries. And that's a problem. And how do you think that, because though the US have gone through these two steps, I think there was a kind of gradual pulling back under Obama, and now there's an alignment um, with Saudi Arabia and with the Sunni states against, um, against Iran. Well, I'm not sure. I think, um, you know, Charles de Gaulle said, I flew to a complex region with simple ideas about the Middle East. I think Trump probably has just undergone the same process. And uh, I mean, obviously, if you look at his tweets about the Qatar crisis, you can see that for him, the world is very simple and there are good and bad guys. And in this case, it's Qatar and so forth. And I think the US under Trump will realize, uh, as Obama, as Bush, as all the presidents before, that it's a very complex region and alliances shift all the time. It's an alliance one-way system. So because you get along with Saudi Arabia on the issue of Qatar, that doesn't mean at all that you get along on other issues such as Al-Qaeda. Um, and it's a labyrinth for anyone who gets in. Uh, difficult to get out. That applies to Trump as well. Partly, you know, building of that, I think one of the professional diseases we have as foreign policy analysts is to look at things like, you know, US, European, Russian, Chinese influence, uh, you know, conditionality, assistance. Those are names of all the projects which are, you've been running. Yeah, yeah, which, <laughs> which is really great. But it's also, uh, sometimes it's striking the degree to which small states, for domestic political reasons, can do or frustrate great powers in pretty amazing ways, right? Just to invoke you, give you some a couple of examples. I think of Putin and Yanukovych 2013, the president of Ukraine at the time. You know, he was basically on the pl on a plate for Russia to be eaten alive with his entire country and integrated into the Eurasian Union. And yet the Russians could not handle him. You know, Yanukovych was isolated from the West. No one was giving real assistance to Ukraine. He was there for two, three years for Putin to be handled well. And the Russians mishandled and Yanukovych resisted Russian attempts to integrate Ukraine. And then the revolution, uh, revolution happened. Now, you know, a recent example, Moldova. Moldova is run by an unpopular oligarch uh, who is a 2% public support, has a president who is pro-Russian, and yet it expels five Russian diplomats just a couple of weeks ago. And now if you think about it, there's, it's pretty rare for a country, even EU or NATO member states, to actually expel five Russian diplomats today. And getting such a challenge from a country like Moldova is pretty... Another case, Macedonia and the EU. Macedonia has been completely dependent in security terms, economic terms, political terms, soft power, great power, hard power terms from the EU for 15 years. And yet it took months and multiple trips, let alone phone calls, to resolve an internal crisis in Macedonia that was pretty basic to resolve. You know? So when you look at these examples of how small rulers for domestic uh, uh, purposes with domestic resources frustrate um, you know, the external powers in, in a pretty amazing almost way, it tells you also probably that we, we really, uh, it's good to be focused on how great powers act, but very often the domestic situation and the resources of pretty small states are also uh, determining to a significant extent the way politics and geopolitics evolve. And, you know, what the examples Florence just invoked from the Middle East is a bit of a similar case with mm. Qatar, you know, playing its own games in, in a really stormy and complex region and um, they have a lot more in common than you would think on the surface yeah but i still would rather work on your region no, really. <laughs> <laughs> so what can what do you think europe can do in this because what we're talking about is so little countries much more uh agent like than than political scientists might have thought they were uh big countries 
uh, having sort of complicated relationships. And then the EU is not even a country, which makes it even more complicated as an actor. It's a kind of division of countries which are quite divided on, on the key players in these different areas. Um, maybe we could just talk a bit about what can be done. I think, you know, the one thing that strikes me is when we look at, also part of this resilience debate, uh, this fear of change that we have. Uh, human beings in general, huh? but Europeans in particular. And so you look at the region that I work on and you see oh, Islamists coming to power and mili military coming to power and uh, people dying, going to prison. And it's all, it looks like a, a political process that's gone terribly wrong to us Europeans, because for us political process is stability and basically more of the same. I mean, I vote in the same system as my grandfather did, essentially. Um, but maybe, this is just a shocking thought, maybe that's just the nature of political development. Nico, you said earlier, um, history goes in zigzags and in waves. Uh, maybe in cycles seeing, rather than zigzags. Or cycles. You're not very Hegelian. I'm zigzagging. <laughs> maybe, maybe the instability we see today is the result of, um, well, is, is the, are the birth pangs of a different kind of system. Now, what Europe can do, I think what we should avoid to do is to change the process as it is. I mean, we cannot just stop the violence from happening. It's just physically not feasible and also politically not feasible. But what we can do is, and I think that's what we're actually good at, is economics. Um, for, I think the EU created uh, late in 2016 a European investment fund backing companies that want to invest in the Middle East, for instance, which is really a lot more, a lot more important than the money we give in the concept of the European neighborhood policy because foreign policy uh, investments is what really stimulates job creation. And we haven't done that. Actually, in the Middle East, we have as one of the regions of the world where nobody wants to invest. And of course, you know, there are obvious reasons for that. But that would actually help a lot more than sending money into a nice infrastructure project or water improvement project and so forth. So I think that's really our, our biggest asset. But you think there's nothing that Europeans can do to help de-escalate the wars that are going on in Syria, in Libya in other countries which are generating mass chaos, radicalizing people <laughs> and exporting well, I don't hundreds want to of be, thousands of refugees I don't want to be mainly to other countries but I don't want to be defeatist and say well. well no there's nothing we can do um, I think obviously in the, in the uh, negotiations um, between opposition and regime well, in Syria we have not played a particularly important role, in part that's because we said from the start that we don't want Assad to stay so that kind of disqualifies us in the eyes of uh, of the regime as a negotiator. Um, so we, should we change that? Um, I think, quite honestly, I do not see Assad as part of the solution. I know that there are people who begin to think that uh, maybe he can do this better um, than us, but this is the guy who triggered the civil war in the first place. So why suddenly he would be able to control a population that he was not able to control without the help of Russia and Iran for the last uh, six years, I don't understand. But what we can do, uh, and that's what we're already planning, is uh, reconstruction. I think, uh, again, our economic component is a lot stronger in this regard than our political component. But we're, like, um, we're only willing to work in rebel-controlled parts of Syria rather than across the... Well, arguably, there's also more destruction in those areas than in the regime-held areas. Um, but you know, but when there is, if you want to have a, leverage over the people who are running the country, well, that, but I think there is the issue. Well, we still have conversations with the regime. By the way, we have not suspended diplomatic relations at all. Um, but we, the, the regime, attaches conditions to us working with it, and we don't want these conditions, which do include uh, the Free Syrian Army and so forth. So. 
I'm not saying that we are particularly consistent. I'm not saying that we are the strongest player in Syria. But there are certain things we can do. And for a start, we can think about the future of Syria after this crisis is over, which we don't. I don't see foresee happening this year. When it comes to Libya, um, I think one thing people misunderstand about Libya is that it's not like there is no state and it's Somalia on the Mediterranean. Essentially, what the Libyans have done is they've taken the system of Gaddafi, the Jamaharia, which is a really uh, flat, hierarchical, direct participation kind of system, and they've continued it. So that means caucus democracy on every single thing, which for foreign policy purposes is horrible because the only person who did foreign policy in the Jamaharia was Gaddafi himself. But you've you got several... It's not that you don't have one state, you've got several states which Exactly. Are so under the, under the Jamaharia system, you had 356, 356 basic congresses, and they are still operational, and they're managing localities. It's this, uh, you know, that's why at local level in Libya, things are actually going rather well. But when it comes to everything that was in the hands of Gaddafi, that is defense security, diplomacy, and so forth, that knowledge doesn't exist, and that's why it's difficult for us to find an interlocutor. And what about in towards the east, Niku? I mean, one of the there are kind of three sets of issues which we seem really stuck on. One is what to do about Russia, it's a kind of important country, and um, uh, we've got a sanctions regime, but it's a bit of a one-dimensional policy towards Russia. Then Turkey, also quite an important player in the Balkans and in the Middle East, um, and over refugees and other sorts of things that we care about. Not really sure about what to do with them. We're stuck in a policy which many member states don't believe in, but they don't really want to get, get out of the enlargement paradigm and there is this refugee deal will it survive won't it survive how much do people think about it and then you know there are all the 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 other kind of countries some of which are part of accession processes which aren't don't seem to be going anywhere and have lost a lot of credibility and then other countries which are sort of part of the 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 neighborhood policy but which uh, has had the technocratic successes you're talking about but many of those countries are uh, going towards greater authoritarianism and are very fragile at at best. Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of de-escalation, I think one of the major stories of the EU sanctions on Russia is that actually that was an amazing de-escalatory tool. Uh, This is what basically put a certain lead on the degree and the spread and the quantity uh, of uh, weapons and militaries that Russia was willing to devote to the war in Donbass. And without uh, the EU and uh, US sanctions uh, introduced against Russia primarily in the summer of 2014 over Donbass, probably the war zone would have been larger in Ukraine. Probably there would have been uh, more cities falling into the war zone, uh, more deaths, uh, and more Russian soldiers crossing the border for operations in Ukraine. And those sanctions actually more or less contained the degree of escalation, and I think they're uh, a kind of um, unremarked uh, diplomatic success in limiting the, the, the time and the uh, spread of the conflict in Donbass. Uh, now, another probably thing worth noticing is that actually if you look at the technocratic policies that the EU has done vis-a-vis Russia and Ukraine, they've worked pretty well. And that's partly a lesson of European history where, you know, while integrating the steel and coal community and the atomic industries of France and Germany, a few years, a few decades down the road to get Franco-German reconciliation and you think that uh, political economy solutions built peace because it, it did work in Europe. But that actually, that Solution doesn't didn't work in the East. If you look at EU Russia, I mean the Russians have never traded more with Europe than they did in the last ten years. 
Russia uh, has been receiving 40% of Schengen visas issued worldwide. So, you know, the amount of Russians who come to the EU and study in the EU has never been greater in history. And yet, the more we traded, the more the Europeans invested in Russia, the more Europeans, uh, Russians came as tourists or students to the EU, the more complicated the geopolitical relationship became. On a smaller scale, the same happened with Ukraine. So actually, the truth is that what worked uh, in, in Europe, technocratic solution to war and peace issues, doesn't seem to be working vis-a-vis Ukraine and Russia, and we still need a proper security policy and a proper forceful diplomacy. Uh, mediation, pressure, um, uh, engagement, uh, flattery, if necessary. Uh, and that is where I think the, the next uh, decade of EU foreign policy in the region should concentrate, on not so much on the technocratic fi- uh, things that, that more or less worked well, uh, but on the kind of high politics diplomacy, uh, but also... Um, uh, more effort put into helping states like Ukraine build a proper military, build a proper intelligence service, because what we've discovered is that if Ukrainians don't have the right intelligence personnel to uh, react to a Russian incursion down the road, uh, you know, EU, ex- EU exporters have to suffer because we're in a major breakdown of relations with Russia. Thank you very much. So there are lots of ideas there. I think we're now all going to take part in a panel at this EU Institute of Security Studies conference, and we'll be passing on some of these thoughts to, the, to um, Federico Mogherini, the EU's High Representative for Foreign and Security Policy and Vice President of the European Commission. It's been great talking to the two of you. Many thanks. So that brings this fascinating discussion to a close. We will put links up to some of the publications that Niku and Florence have written, as well as some of ECFR's own publications, at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please go straight to iTunes and give us a rating and a review and tell your friends about it on Twitter, on Facebook. You can write on our Facebook page as well. And if you have any comments on this podcast or suggestions for future ones, feel free to write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Florence and Niku and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke, and our editor is Bolin Goemi. Thank you.